Artemis or Diana of the Ephesians. Ephesus was the place where this uh, great temple to this goddess was located. And uh, they are very upset about this. Now, theoretically, Demetrius and his friends are upset because of the great blasphemy and disgrace against the goddess. But the truth was, their business was being hurt. They made shrines and figurines or whatever to this goddess. And as people were turning away from idolatry and turning to the Lord, they weren't buying this stuff. And so they had a financial um, underlying reason for this big protest. They gather a bunch of people together in the theater and have more or less a riot. They shout and carry on for a couple of hours. Some of them didn't even know why they were there. They just kind of in for the ride. And uh, I pointed out, uh, I think as we closed perhaps, that in 32 when it says, for the assembly was in confusion, that's actually, believe it or not, the word that's normally translated church. The church was in confusion. I think that's not much of a church. Well, it wasn't like Christ church. It's what the word itself meant. Like, what would I say, what would you think if I said, you know, back in the first century, they, they, they baptized the dishes. <laughs> well, they baptized the Were they trying to convert them? No, no. The word baptize meant to dunk something underwater. So they dunked the dishes underwater to clean them. You know, they baptized them. If you want to use the term that's used in the Bible, you know, but we usually just think of baptize as being religious baptism and we use dunk for something else. And the same thing's true of church. We only think of church as being like for religious groups. But in the first century, it just meant a group. It could be a riotous group in a theater. That was a church. That kind of helps you understand what the word means. And then that was the word that was picked up on, and used for Christ's church. So that's where we're at. Everybody in the theater rioting and hollering out, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Comments and questions before we move on from 1932. All right, why don't we go ahead and reread then 33 to 41. And some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward. And having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, great as Artemis of the Ephesians. And after quieting the multitude, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there, after all, who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is guardian of the temple of the great Artemis, and of the image which fell down from heaven? Since then, these are undeniable facts. You ought to keep calm and, do, and to do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it should be settled in the lawful assembly. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's affair, since there is no real cause for it. And in this connection, we shall be un unable to account for this disorderly gathering, gathering. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. So, some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander. This, uh, the Jews had tried to get him to talk. I'm not exactly sure what Alexander the Jew was going to have said. I don't know if he was going to have joined in with the Christians opposing idolatry, 
or if he was going to have tried to distinguish the Jews from the Christians and say this isn't us. I don't know. But the crowd shouts him down. And so it's just a, it's, it's an unruly, you know, gathering of, of, of people. Uh, you wonder what's going to happen. You know, you get a group of people worked up like this, they can do a lot of damage in the city. Well, who comes and manages to get control of the situation? The town clerk? Yeah. That's probably not a real good translation for us. When I think of a clerk, I think of somebody who's sitting at a desk, you know, writing down numbers or something. But the town clerk here means like the chief executive officer of the city. We'd probably you'd call him mayor. You know, but, but the town uh, mayor talks to the crowd. He gets them quiet, and he tells them several things. In the first place, in 35 and 36, what does he tell them? It says everybody knows that this is the house of Artemis, or the place, and we're the guardian of the temple, and... These are just undeniable facts. <laughs> so the tumult is useless because everybody knows, you know, Artemis's reputation is safe. You know, nobody disputes these things. That may not be so true, but <laughs> the uh, truth is not really in question here. It's just trying to calm them down. Um, and then in 37, what's he said? these men haven't done anything wrong. Yeah, this tumult is not justifiable. I mean, you know, these guys are not robbers of temples. They're not blasphemers of our goddess. But they were. But they were, yeah. I don't think he was <laughs> right about that. In fact, I think Demetrius was righter about that one than what the town clerk was, but he's just trying to calm them down. You know, so, you know how worldly people are. Do worldly people allow facts to, uh, you know, disturb what they're trying to say? <laughs> Sound like the healthcare debate today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't hear the debate today, but yes. Sounds like politicians, doesn't it? And that's what this mayor would have been. So he's trying to politically smooth things over, never mind the truth of the matter. Uh, and then, in 38 and 39, what does he say? You know, if they've got something against these men, we'll take them to court. You know, we have courts as a means of settling disputes of, uh, you know, if there's some sort of damage that's been done, you know, the court, the legal process will take care of that. Or there's the legislature in verse 39. If you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful assembly. Now, I think the lawful here, maybe with an underscore, the, the assembly they're in right now is not lawful, but when he says it'll be settled in the lawful assembly, there's another time, lawful church. Because the word church in the first century was most commonly used in secular literature for the town council. It was known as the town church. It was the group that met together you know, to decide town business. So, either take it to court, or if a new law needs to be passed, take it to the town church, to the town council, 
We have legal means of dealing with things. This tumult is not necessary and it's not lawful. Let's deal with this in a lawful, rightful way. We have all the mechanisms in place to do that. And then in verse 40, what does he say? We don't want it said of us that we have done right. This could be dangerous for us, you know, because if uh, people found out about this, you know, like the Romans, why, that could be an excuse for them to take away our freedom. You know, the truth is, it's not so much Christianity that's threatening the well-being of Ephesian society, it's more the riot that could really bring the, bring the wrath of Rome down on them. The lawbreakers right here are the people who are doing the persecuting, not the people who are being persecuted. So that those are some key points that the town clerk makes. I think these last two are perhaps more valid, you know, and let's do this in a lawful way because this assembly could get us in big trouble. And when he says all that, he tells them that they can go home now. <laughs> you know, he dismisses the assembly. Kind of funny because he really didn't call it together, but he, he dismisses them and sends them home. And he's gotten them quieted down, calmed down, and, you know, that's that. Comments and questions on all this? <clears throat> yeah, this guy was wrong on a lot of things. Let me see that. But I think it's interesting that he makes a very, in a way, a point that we can definitely apply to ourselves when he talks about how we all know these things are true, so why are you, why are you so mad? Why are you so flustered by this? And I think in some ways, as Christians, we can be less flustered by things. We get so emotional about certain things, and, and in a lot of ways, that almost shows that we're almost insecure if we're right or not. If you really do know you're right, and you really do know what the Bible says, be calm about it. You've got no reason to be upset. You know, be calm. And I think in a lot of ways, and, 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 and this, me, if, I, if I'm not the biggest, I struggle with this probably more than anyone, but I get so worked up about situations in a lot of ways, it just makes myself just more likely to make a mistake and say something I shouldn't say. Be calm. You know you can trust the Bible. You know, we know we can do these things. We can we can say what the Bible says and trust that these are the facts. Let's not get emotional in this situation because the people that are calm are really the ones, I think, they really know that they know what they're talking about. Excellent point. Yeah. Other thoughts? Okay. Uh, so that is kind of uh, the last thing we know about Paul's time in Ephesus uh, as far as just the historical account is concerned. So he spent two to three years here and we've got that summarized basically in chapter 19. That's a lot of time to cover in one chapter. But he's going to move on now in chapter 20 and so would somebody read 1 to 6. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had, come, and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail, sail for Syria, he decided to return to Macedonia. Sopitar the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, and... Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus, and Trophimus. These went on ahead, 
waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Okay. Now, this kind of shows you where Paul's going here. He uh, exhorted the disciples in Ephesus, left them to go to Macedonia. We can dovetail this with 2 Corinthians, and probably he went up to Troas looking for Titus, didn't find Titus, and moved on into Macedonia where he found Titus. Several points of contact here uh, with other uh, references in the letters. I also wonder, Romans chapter 15, verse 19, indicates that Paul preached all the way up in Illyricum, which was kind of north of Macedonia. We don't know when he preached in Illyricum, but this might be one possibility. Maybe as he went in Macedonia, he also went up to Illyricum and preached. That's just a conjecture, but this is one possible spot that could have happened. And then when he'd gone through those districts and exhorted them, he came to Greece. Now, Greece would probably be what city? Athens? I, it's in Greece, but we don't know there being a lot of Paul in Greece after his original time there. Possibly Corinth. I think Corinth is more likely, and it's probable that Paul spent the winter in Corinth, and likely that he wrote the letter Romans while he was in Corinth. And so he spent some time there, three months it says. When a plot was formed against him by the Jews, he's, as he's about to set sail for Syria, he, he decided to go by land through Macedonia. He's going to throw his enemies off track, and instead of going by sea where they were going to try to ambush him and kill him somehow, he was going to go by, by land. Uh, you see he had a lot of close calls. And he wasn't traveling alone. In fact, look at the list of people that were with him in verse 4 and where all they were from. Wonder why all these guys were with Paul on this trip. Bodyguards. (laughs) Yeah, maybe so. Uh, But I think there might be another explanation. Actually, they had gone on ahead. Yeah, but they were still traveling together, essentially. They weren't right with Paul as he goes over land. But what do you think, Shane? Possibly he might have been intending to leave some of them in the cities as he went to encourage while he was gone. Also possible. I think there's a better explanation. We don't know for sure, but I think there's a, there's a more likely explanation. What if they Do what? Paul was lonely? No. <laughs> what if perhaps they were just looking for one person, and if they found a group of people, they wouldn't... Necessarily, I don't know. I don't know, but they had gone on ahead and were waiting, so they weren't actually with Paul as he went over land. I suspect, you know, at this point in time, Paul is taking the money from various churches back to the poor Christians in Jerusalem. And from what we can tell from 2 Corinthians, every church had messengers they selected to accompany and take their money. Well, look, you've got people from all over. Here you've got a guy from Berea, and then you've got a couple of guys from Thessalonica. You've got somebody uh, from, from Derby and Timothy from Lystra, the churches of Galatia. Then you've got Tychicus and Trophimus from Asia. You know, I don't know for sure. This, this may not be the case, 
but but that would be perfect. You've got these guys from all the different churches that would be taking the money and accompanying Paul essentially on his trip back to Jerusalem. That's just that's something to throw out. You you don't have to agree with that, but uh, I think that's fairly likely. Well, whatever. These guys have gone on ahead. And did you notice verse five? Who were they waiting for at Troas? They were waiting for us. Now, it hasn't been us in the first part of chapter 20. So the us means Luke joined them. Now, where was Paul going through when Luke evidently joined him? You have to look at this carefully. Where did Paul... Greece. He'd been in Greece, and then where was he going through when... when when you know he ends up coming to Troas, Macedonia. Macedonia. See that in verse tw- uh, three, he decided to return through Macedonia, accompanied by these guys who'd gone on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. I say Paul picked up Luke in Macedonia. Do you remember where Paul had evidently left Luke off on his second trip? Philippi. Philippi in Acts chapter 16. <clears throat> Philippi is the dead end for the we sections right there. <laughs> well, what province was Philippi in? Macedonia. Macedonia. You know, we can't prove this, but there's no reason to think that Luke hadn't stayed in Philippi. And now as Paul comes back through on his third journey, he picks up Luke where he left him and comes over to Troas and guess what Troas was? The city where he picked Luke up at in Acts chapter 16. So that's just really remarkable coincidence if, if we've got all that figured out uh, correctly. Uh, so you can, you can think about that. Now, Luke doesn't stay in Troas this time. He continues on with Paul. And for that reason, all the travel logs through this uh, part of uh, Acts are very detailed with lots of ports and, uh, you know, stopovers and details about the time spent and things like that. Because Luke was a lot more detailed in giving the travel information when he was accompanying Paul. Makes sense, doesn't it? You know, he probably had notes in his diary or whatever. Yes. Where is the chapter that talks about the money being taken to church? That was earlier in Acts. Ooh, nowhere earlier in Acts. Now you've got 1 Corinthians 16, you've got 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, you've got Romans 15, and then there's a one, only one reference in Acts, and that's in Acts uh, uh, somewhere, 2417. Uh, now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and present offerings. When it said earlier that um, they decided to pass back, or they came to Greece, so would they call Greece like Macedonia and Achaia combined, like we would? No. Greece was Achaia. Okay. Yeah. Good question. I should have said that, but yes. Greece is just another term for Achaia, for them. Yeah. So, they sailed from Philippi, so we know that when he went through Macedonia, he came through Philippi. We sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days, 
and there we stayed seven days. All right, anything you want to say on these first six verses? All right, how about uh, 7 through 12? On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, Paul began, te began talking to them, intending to leave the next day, and he prolonged his message until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we gathered together, and there was a young man named Eutychus sitting on the window still. So, sinking into a uh, deep sleep. And as Paul kept on talking, he was overcome by sleep and fell down from the third floor and was picked up dead. But Paul went down and fell upon him. And after embracing him, he said, Do not be troubled, for his life is in him. Is in him. When he had gone back up and had broken the bread and eaten, he talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. They took away the boy alive and were greatly confirmed. <laughs> okay. Very good. So, um, he stays seven days to the first day of the week. It says, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. Now, breaking bread here, I suspect, is talking about the Lord's Supper. The term break bread could mean just eating a meal together. But you assume they probably did that every day. It'd be kind of weird to, you know, talk about that. You know, after seven days, we gather together to eat. Uh, much more likely, I think he's talking about the Lord's Supper. And apparently, this was a custom of theirs. You know, he doesn't say as if this was something new. But on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul started talking to them planning on leaving the next day and he talked for a long time <laughs> um, you know he talked in, until midnight so evidently they were accustomed to gathering together on the first day of the week evidently they were accustomed to taking the Lord's Supper on that day and Paul took advantage of that meeting he's gonna be leaving the next day so he's got a lot to say wanted to get it all in in one sermon and he preaches till midnight well what unfortunate incident occurred Yes, and you wouldn't believe this, but do you know what the name Eutychus means? Sleeper. No. Good guess. No. Window sitter. No. No. Lucky. <laughs> well, it doesn't look like it right then, does it? Uh, he lives up to his name a little bit later in the story, but uh, <laughs> of all the luck, you know, he gets sleepy. You know, it's probably good that people today don't sit in open windows in upper rooms during church services. <laughs> I know several who uh, might end up with broken necks and... I don't think I could do what Paul did here. <laughs> you know. I don't know if you could preach till midnight. <laughs> I started at 11.45, I think I could. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, that would be a little challenging for me. I don't think I could stay awake that late. <laughs> so, poor guy. Now, it says he was a young man. Now, that term, young man, most of what, what I have read that the typical age range that was used for that term would be like 8 to 14 years old. 
So it's probably something in that age range that he was. He's a young man. And, uh, wow. I mean, he dies. Can you imagine the commotion? That, how horrible. You know, of all the things. Uh, falls out of the window, third floor, picked up dead. Paul goes down, falls on him, embraces him and said, Oh, don't be troubled. His life's in him. And sure enough. He's alive. You know, Paul brought his life back. Uh, now, one of the points that I've made through this every once in a while is that Luke takes pains to show Paul doing parallel things to what Peter did in the first half. Do you remember Peter raising anybody from the dead in the first half of the book? Jairus' daughter? No, that was Jesus. Who? Dorcas. Dorcas. Yes. Also known as oh. Tabitha. Oh. Yeah. Where is that? That's in Acts chapter nine. Acts chapter nine, verse thirty-six to forty-three. So, uh, so Paul does something similar. Uh, he went back up. He broke the bread and ate. Talked with them a long while until daybreak and then left. So this is apparently just kind of an all-night meeting. Uh, but, I mean, do you understand, you know, we read this and we look for various things, but, but if you just think about the emotion of this, I mean, we know, we find out just a little bit later on that Paul is finding out everywhere he goes that he's probably not going to survive this. He's probably going to get imprisoned. You know, it's probably going to be really bad for him. Who knows if he'll ever be back in Troas again. You know, I mean, that would be emotional for us. And we have email, and we have texting, and we have, you know, telephones, and, you know, we have good mail service and all. He, they may not hardly have communication anymore. Can you see why he would have preached until midnight? Can you see why they would have stayed awake until daybreak, you know, talking together and, and worshiping together and, and things like that? Uh, so, this is, this is an emotional time, and... Uh, Paul, they take the boy up alive and Paul goes on. Comments and questions? Cass? Do you think that maybe that why do you think God maybe let this young man fall out? Do you think maybe it was to show I mean for Paul to why do you think I don't know, why do you think he... Maybe it was to allow Paul the opportunity to show his credentials by raising him from the dead. You could also think, you know, I don't know how much to do with this, but is it possible that we should think about any spiritual parallels here? What happens when we fall asleep spiritually? What do we do? We... Before we die, we fall and die. I think that's an interesting application. I mean, I'm not saying that's what he did, but I'm saying there's a parallel in the spiritual realm to this. Other questions? Logan. See in uh, verse 7, it looks like their purpose that they came together, that they met, was to take the Lord's Supper. I would agree. A lot, a lot of the times we put all the primary focus on the lesson. Should we make the primary focus of our services the Lord's Supper? I don't know. 
the answer to that. I'm not sure that's enough to say that. Uh, I mean, even here, uh, maybe Paul preached longer than they partook of the Lord's Supper <laughs> from what's said. Uh, but certainly a primary focus, at least. More than that, I'm not sure what to say about that. Verse 11 is the breaking the bread there, also the Lord's That is an excellent question, uh, to which I don't have an excellent answer. I tend to say yes, but I'm not sure. We're in Acts 20, verses 7 to 12. They preach for a long time, if that's the case. Yes. Judicus is dying, all that. Yes, that's correct. One reason I would say that, but this is not like conclusive, but in verse 11, when he'd gone back up and had broken the bread, the article there gives a little more weight to the idea that it's a reference back to what was done in verse 7. Looks to me like my initial thought was it was after midnight. Probably so. And then they had the Lord's Supper on Monday. Mm, who knows? You know, they were gathered together on the first day of the week. No idea how they were counting time. You know, evidently they're associated with the breaking of bread with the first day of the week, maybe that they were counting the day as beginning at, at uh, you know, sunset. Some t in some places that was done. So, I'm not sure what to say about that. Um, maybe so. But it would have to be one or the other, right? Because otherwise they would be taking of it twice on consecutive days. Or I mean, can it be both in verse 7 and 11? The only thing, I do remember one thing about that, though, that you might think about, too, um, that might go against that idea is um, let's see, uh, there is one statement about the next day, isn't there? Let's see if there is. When we've gone back and eaten, he talked with them for a long time. He's going to depart the next day. Okay, he's going to depart the next day. Where was that? Seven. Okay. Alright, so he's going to intending to leave the next day, which might tend to give you the idea that he's considering, you know, daybreak the next day. So that may indicate that this was a midnight to midnight sort of thing. There's not a lot of information given on all that, but, you know, I still tend to, I tend to think that the broken the bread makes it more likely that it's the same bread he was talking about in verse 7. I don't think that forces that, but I think that's the most natural conclusion. Cass? Um, in, in verse 12 it says, and they were not a little comforted. Yeah, my translation says, and were greatly comforted. That's not, not a little means a lot. Yeah, it, but it's my margin says, uh, yeah. I thought, they meant they, it, I thought it meant they weren't comforted. No, they were not a little comforted. That uh, means they were a lot comforted. <laughs> the Bible uses that expression a lot. That, and, and literally, it was something like that, but it means greatly. Cast you know, yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, Paul. Paul says in one of his defenses, he was a citizen of no insignificant city. And then, last chapter, there was no small disturbance. There was no small disturbance. Yeah. Why is he talking? That's just a figure of speech. Just a way of saying it. You know, Cameron, I think is next. Oh, um, 
In verse 12, it says boy, but earlier it says young man. So, what's that? Is he a boy or a young man? What are you? We sometimes refer to you as both. (laughs) If he's about your age, I think he can go by either one. And he bothers about your age. Well, about 30 and under back then was young. The the term for um, young man in verse 9 uh, usually refers to somebody from 8 to 14. I think it's that term and not the term boy. Anyhow, what my in my notes, from what I've read, uh, the terms that are used, he's probably 8 to 14, something that way. So no. Not a big deal. So it was okay for him to go to sleep. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, in my experience, it seems more okay the older you get, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, right. I walked in a little late, so I don't know if this already got asked, but in verse 11, when he says it's broken bread and eaten, you know, is that broken bread talking about just like a normal meal? I think it's more likely it's the bread of verse 7 because it says... Oh, really? that and have broken the bread and eaten. But that's not a sure thing. Oh, like maybe seven saying they came together, but not that they broke bread in verse right. seven, but then... And then they, they broke the bread in verse eleven. Okay, that makes oh, that makes sense too. Logan. I was going to ask this earlier and I forgot. If the young man is talking about ages 8 to 14, I've heard some people say that in the Jewish culture, the Jew came of age at like 12 or 13 years old. Is that true? When do they have the bar mitzvahs? I'm not sure. 13? 13. Don't know that it makes a whole lot of difference, but shake. Going back to what Logan said about the Lord's Supper, um, it seems more likely to me, and I could be totally wrong about this, but the important thing in worship is the Lord. And no matter how, what part of worship you're in, whether it's singing or the Lord's Supper, <coughs> preaching or whatever, all is important. And as for making one thing more important than the other, and there's plenty of mentions in the Bible also about when Paul came and preached to them. You know, just because we see them preaching doesn't mean necessarily that's the most important thing about a worship service. So, um, just because the specific thing they mentioned here was to break bread doesn't mean it's necessarily the most important thing um, that of all the worship. Uh, you know, and there's different places where it talks about different people doing different things. Um, and I think, you know, to put the focus on all of it, it's all about the Lord. It's all about glorifying the Lord in your worship. Whether you're the Lord's Supper, whether it's your singing, whether it's your praying, whether it's after services, talking to people about the Lord. All of it's important. All of it is our opportunity to glorify the Lord on the first day of the week. Like okay. Amen. Other questions, Cam? Um, it, when Jesus first partook of the bread or whatever, it was in the upper room. And here, they're in the upper room again. Is there any significance in that? Well, that's a good question. Um... One way you could take that is if you're going to partake of the Lord's Supper, you better do it in an upper room. Uh-oh. What would you say to that? Okay. Do you know of any time that the Lord's Supper was partaken of somewhere on the first floor? So why wouldn't you say that we had to partake of it in an upper room? I think there's an answer to that, but thanks. Well, does it have to be a command? There's no command to take it on the first day of the week. Good point. There was an example. (laughs) So we've got a uniform example of we're taking the Lord's Supper in upper rooms. So wasn't the upper room approved? Well, (laughs) evidently Paul was there. Jesus was there the first time. I think 
from what I understand, you know, they call it expedient, whatever you want to call it, but I think it's more of the act and not the place. Seems to be. Well, why would we say that? Because <laughs> that's what we do. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yeah. That's the way we do it. It's got to be right. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> You're ruining tradition. <laughs> oh. uh, Ryan tells what the rest of everyone is thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, for that. Thank you Ryan. Yeah. <laughs> if we take things to that extreme, then that also means we can only meet in the places that they met over in the Middle East in the Bible. Also means we only would meet with 12 people. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how many they had here. I think there's a better answer than what we're giving. I'm fishing for it. Because there's no real purpose to it? Like there's no benefit? Maybe it's just chance that they both never. And that's just where they met. Like, Maybe the biggest all, right. all of that's true. Let, let, let me see if I can point out a couple things. And I think I, I really saying this not so much for this point, but because I think we need to understand this in trying to understand other points. Here's how I would approach this. The most the strongest argument is in John 4, Jesus indicated that place didn't matter when it came to where we worship. That it's not going to be in Jerusalem or in Mount Gerizim. That what the Father cares about is worshipers worshiping Him in spirit and in truth, wherever that might be. You have some back up to that in some Old Testament prophecies that talk about them worshiping God in every place. Like Malachi 1.11 and Zephaniah 2.11 and passages like that. So there are passages that positively teach that the location where you worship doesn't matter. Now I think that's, that's the strongest argument we could come up with. Right there. You know, when you've got teaching that says that, then what does that mean about the fact that we have uniform example that they met in an upper room? Well, here's what it means. The two times that it happens to tell us where they partook of the Lord's Supper, both times were in upper room. <laughs> That's what that means. Now, some people have even tried to explain that this way, and it might be a fair explanation. First four floor rooms were more expensive to rent. Christians weren't generally very rich. It's more likely they'd meet in a number room. That makes sense to me. I don't know if that's true or not. But the fact that we have a consistent example of how something is done does not necessarily mean that we have to do it the same way unless there is significance and purpose in the example. You know, the question we have is not, well, is this how they did it? But is it significant that that's how they did it? Is there some uh, you know, it, it, is there some reason why it needs to be done that way? Now, that's a little more subjective, but I think that's a necessary conclusion. We, we can't just say, well, look, they always did it like this. Maybe they did. Is it important that we do it like that? Well, only if it's important that they did it like that. That's what we have to think. People get way off the track when it comes to examples. 
and sometimes say some things that are really not responsive. Uh, but I think that's, that's the question is, is an example significant? Or is it just illustrating a possible way to do something? If you're going to partake of the Lord's Supper with a group, you're going to have to do it somewhere. You're not going to be able to avoid that. And a somewhere is an upper room. But from other Bible teachings, it's not significant that that happens to be the somewhere they partook of. You know, is it significant that there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered? You know, the only way we know for sure that the upper rooms where they partook of the Lord's Supper were lighted is this verse right here that says there were many lamps. So must we have many lamps in our upper room when we take the Lord's Supper. Well, only if there's some significance to that being the lighting source. I know of nothing in the Bible that indicates that it's significant where we get the light from. It just happens to be that way. Some have thought that he mentions that detail because the lamps would have given off kind of a smoke and a haze and it might have made Eutychus sleepier and might have contributed to his falling asleep. I don't know if that's true. It's an interesting idea. He gives us that information for some reason. Maybe he just tells us it was really dark. But, uh, so, that may have opened up more questions than it answered, but that was a good question, whoever asked it, and I'm glad for the chance to make that point. Do you have other questions and comments? Well, you know, like you were saying, I mean, some people just get so strict on certain things, like these examples where they're taking it too far, where they start to find things that were meant to be found. You know, that's I mean? right. So, that's simple. So we have to determine, that. was this example intended as the way, as the pattern, or was it not? Now, there's lots of clues to that. We have to look for different things that would show us that. But that's really the question. You know, an example never binds. An example shows us a way something's done. Whether it has to be done in that way, it depends on is there significance to God showing us that it was done in that way. Other questions and comments? <coughs> Alright, how about 13 to 16? <clears throat> then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Asos there and, and intending to take Paul on board. For so he had given orders, intending himself uh, to go on foot. And when he met us at Asos, we uh, took him on board and came to Mytilene. We sailed from there, and the next day uh, came opposite Chios. The following day, we arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogilium. The next day, we came to Miletus, uh, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Well, you can tell Luke is with him. Port by port, detail by detail, they finally come to Miletus, which was a port city near Ephesus, but Paul decided not to go to Ephesus. Why not? He probably won't stay there too long, and he wanted to get back for the Passover. For the Pentecost feast, yes, exactly. If he went to Ephesus, how would he leave? He loves those brethren so much. They love him so much. He'd spent three years there. You couldn't just, you know, stop. You know, you, can you imagine what it would have been like if Paul had gone to Ephesus? 
how many of the brethren would have wanted him to have supper with them? You know, how could he have spent less than a month there? Well, if he had spent a month there, he couldn't have gotten to Jerusalem by Pentecost, and he determined to do that. And so he just stops at Miletus, and he calls for the elders of the church at Ephesus to come to Miletus and meet them, and he gives them a pep talk. Comments and questions? Why do you want to be at Jerusalem for the I was hoping someone would ask that. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what? <laughs> Evidently, that's important to him. I guess he's going to celebrate the feast with his Jewish brethren. So it's, you know, it'd be, it'd be about like saying, you know, I do that on my Brazil trips. I travel, you know, usually in the fall to Brazil. But if you've ever noticed how I do that, I always get back by Thanksgiving. Now there's a reason why I get back by Thanksgiving. Same. Sandra and our families. You know, Thanksgiving is an important cultural event for us. And so I always make sure I'm back by Thanksgiving. There have been times I've gotten back on Tuesday before Thanksgiving on Thursday. In fact, I kind of like doing it that way for various reasons. But, you know, I'm back by Thanksgiving. So he wanted to get to Jerusalem to be able to join with his brethren in celebrating the Pentecost feast. Remember, he's a Jew, and this is culturally something Jews did. So is he still observing all of the Jewish holidays and feasts? When he's with the Jews, I think he is. He no, is not he's... acting like a Jew when he's with the Gentiles. Okay. Just like, you know... Well, we sort of celebrated, you know, some American holidays in Brazil, but we did it pretty low-key. Or we did it in a way that we could, you know, share that with the Brazilians and have fun out of it. But we didn't wave our flag while we were in Brazil. So what would, they, what would the Pentecost feast mean for them, or why would they be? It was a time when all the Jews would come to Jerusalem and they'd, they'd share together. And they'd of course, some of the Jews, wouldn't they still be doing that as part of keeping the old law? Yes, they would. The, the thing about the old law is, the old law was tricky. It was a religious law and it was a national law both. It was the Jews, um, you know, um, constitution. And so it was, their, it was their culture, their tradition. Paul was not against the Jews being Jews. For example, circumcision. What did Paul do with Timothy? Had him circumcised. Had the rascal circumcised. You know, after all that he says against circumcision, why did he say, why did he have Timothy circumcised? Because of his influence among the Jews. Absolutely. He's a Jew. Half Jew. He needs to be circumcised because that's what Jews do and he's going to try to reach the Jews. Did Paul ever teach Jews, don't you circumcise your kids? By no means. He was very supportive of Jews practicing circumcision. That was a Jewish thing. He was very against them commanding Gentile Christians to be circumcised. If they commanded Gentiles to be circumcised, what did that prove they thought about circumcision? That it was necessary to be saved. Exactly! They're not doing it as a national, ethnic, cultural thing then. Now, if the Jews circumcise their kids, but they're fine with Gentiles not, then they're not seeing this as a law of God that's binding on people for salvation. They're seeing it as a mark of being a Jew. 
So I think it's the same thing with the Jewish holidays. You know, Paul opposed binding Jewish holidays on Gentiles. But he kept them when he was with the Jews, and he was fine with that. He didn't ever tell the Jews, don't you keep a Jewish holiday. That was a part of their culture. That's a hard thing for us. This idea of the law being a, a religious law and a national law. It's hard for us to distinguish those things sometimes in our mind. Um, <clears throat> I think this goes to show something that's important that certain things that aren't wrong in themselves, when taken to an extreme, can be wrong. You know, I think that's an important thing to see here that these things, there was nothing wrong with them doing these things. This is what they had always done, this is a tradition. It didn't mean anything to them. That's why he continued to do it. But whenever we take them so far to an extreme, they'll make, almost make them our life and more important than they really should be. And that's when they become wrong to it. Yeah, when, when, we, when we think of circumcision as something that affects our standing before God, you know, that's wrong. When we're circumcised because that's what Jews do and we want to be a good Jew, that's fine. Or for health reasons or whatever. I think that's the explanation to these things. I know there are a few of these you know, areas, and we're going to get into some of them eventually, that are really kind of um, uncomfortable for us. And maybe there's something in this that I'm not seeing. But I don't know a better explanation than this. It makes sense. It fits in with everything we can see about Paul and the principles that he says he operates by. Coming? Other things through 16. Kevin. So the Pentecost um, is like going to, for him going to Pentecost was like going to camp or something, just to be with the people. Well, I would say it was more <laughs> like going to Thanksgiving or going to the 4th of July. It was a national feast. You know, it commemorated um, the uh, first fruits of the harvest. It commemorated the giving of the law and things like that, those were big things in Jewish life. So it was one of the three big feasts. You know, what are, I mean, you know, Fourth of July and, and, and Thanksgiving, I think, are our parallel cultural feasts. You know, people will sometimes ask about, you know, what do Brazilians do on the Fourth of July? <laughs> they do whatever they do on the 3rd of July, you know. Couldn't be a thing to them. You stop and think about why we celebrate the 4th of July. Same thing about Thanksgiving. They know about our Thanksgiving, but it has no relationship to them. That is very much a national thing. You know, some other holidays are things that are worldwide for various reasons. But these are, you know, very much our special days. What was the Pentecost celebrating? It was celebrating the in-gathering of the first of the harvest and the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. Other thoughts? Well, what's Paul going to say to these elders? Um, you know, <laughs> Paul was wanting to get to Pentecost, but he couldn't bear to get that close without at least talking to a few of the brethren in Ephesus. And so he called for the elders, and he says a lot. Uh, we'll have to uh, look at this kind of in parts. I want you to see how we're going to break this down. Um, look at verse 22 
he starts, and now. Look at verse 25. He says, and now. Look at verse 32. He says, and now. So those are the breaks I see that he makes in this speech. So, 17 to 21. From Miletus he went to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. When they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came in Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you, and taught you publicly from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay. So he looks back as he talks with these elders on the time he spent with them uh, in Asia, which is where they were at, serving the Lord. Uh, look at what he says. I mean, you know, he reviews this, I think, in part because this is the way they need to act. This is a great example for them. Serving the Lord with what? Humility. How, what kind of humility? Yeah, but what, uh, in, the, in the New American Standard, what kind of humility? All humility. I would say with all humility. Yeah, that's like, well, you're you're, you're humble. You're you're serving with humility, but he was served with all humility. That's such a major mark of the life of the Christian. He's not proud. He's humble. We need to think about that. He didn't try to exalt himself, and with tears. So, what did that have to do with? his work in Ephesus. Yes. He becomes emotionally involved with the people that he's talking to about the world. You know, he cried with them. He you know, sometimes we think that the goal is to develop kind of a, a professional distance from the people we're working with. You know, I, I don't know if this is true, but I've heard that, you know, like there are classes in school where doctors will be trained, how they can kind of detach themselves from their patients because A, it'd be too emotionally traumatic and stressful if they got too close to their patients and then they didn't do well, and B, maybe they wouldn't be as objective about the treatment and so forth if they're too close to them. So as a doctor, you have to be kind of detached from your patients. Well, sometimes we think that's the best way to do it as a Christian, you know, kind of be detached from the people you're trying to work with. A preacher needs to kind of hold, hold himself aloof from the brethren and not get too close to any of them or whatever. Well, it looks to me like Paul did not subscribe to that theory. And you look at passages like 1 Thessalonians 2, and I'm convinced he didn't subscribe to that theory, and a number of others. He cried with them. He cared about them. He loved them. Um, and... He served the Lord with all humility, with tears, and with trials that came upon me through the plots of the Jews. They knew he was constantly under fire, under attack. Wow, what a life. And uh, he says how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you publicly from house to house. You know, he didn't hold anything back. What would, what would be the motivation for shrinking from telling something that was profitable? Scared of? 
sweating badly, we're hurting you physically. Yes. Sometimes we're too eager to be popular. And so we shrink from telling people what they really need to hear. Paul didn't do that. He laid it on the line. He taught them, he taught them publicly, but he was he went from house to house. You know, Paul didn't confine his preaching to a church building, of which there was none as far as I know in Ephesus, or to a synagogue, or to the school of Tyrannus. He went house to house preaching and teaching. He was not afraid to get his hands dirty and be with them and help them house to house to house teaching of repentance and faith. And he preached the same thing to Jews and Greeks because they all needed the same message. That's looking back on Paul's time with them. Really impressive. They all knew that. You know, he's not telling them anything they don't know. They were with him. They, they're leaders of this church, but he's kind of reviewing key points that I think would be, would build them up if they'll think about how he did it and how they should do it. Comments and questions through verse 20. All right, 22 to 24. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Wow. Where is he headed? What does he know about what will happen to him there? It's going to be fun. How much fun? He can barely contain his joy. Yeah, because? Bonds and afflictions. Bonds and afflictions await me. Every city he goes, the Holy Spirit says, when he gets to Jerusalem, you're going to get bound and afflicted. You know, you're going you're gonna to get arrested and, and tortured. Everywhere he goes, the Holy Spirit says that. I mean, how would you feel if you were headed to a city and the Holy Spirit tells you, every place you go, he tells you when you get there, it's going to be horrible. What would you think? I think I might change my itinerary. But he says, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. Paul doesn't care about his life. He's going to be faithful regardless of the consequences. That is commitment. That's what we need. What if you knew there's going to be bonds and afflictions? Would you go? What if we knew that the person we were going to teach was going to reject us and laugh at us and ridicule us? Would you still teach him? Comments and questions, Shay. This is a true fulfillment of Acts 9, 16, uh, Yeah. What he would say. <coughs> and the Lord says, when he comes to Ananias, and, and he says, you know, I need you to go meet this man, Saul. He says, because I'm going to show him all the things he must suffer for my name's sake. And even 2 Corinthians 11, the same thing. Gary, do you think, because I think it'd be easier today, because I know it's not hard for me to speak out about you know, God or anything when I'm, even when I'm at work and I'm around much people who make fun of me for, you know, for believing the way I believe. But I think it's easier for me today to not be so scared or, you know, ashamed of it or something like that because 
today I guess it's so so many people know or have an idea of God you know what I mean but I mean back then though they're trying to they're, they're bringing in well the Jews should have known it was coming anyway but you know when all of a sudden now they're in this new Christian age you know what I mean and he's trying to go around and bring those people do you think it was so you think maybe it was harder for them back then to start speaking about Jesus than it would be for us today you know it, I mean? it might be Sometimes it may be it's not so hard for us today because we don't speak about him very much, too. That's another factor to consider. But maybe there are times when it's probably more popular and times when it's less popular. So. They don't kill us for it today, either. We're not in this country. Thank God. So. All right. I'm going to stop here because of needing to go to the funeral. So, funeral home. So, we will pick up in 2025, week after next. And then I'll skip three weeks after that. So I'm skipping a week, and then I skip three. So sorry about that.